Well, it's great to be with you this morning. It's great to be here in the Lord's house to worship Him and to bring Him glory. Have you noticed how many times we have used that word today, glory? How many times we've used it in hymns? How many times it's been mentioned in prayer? How many times it's been mentioned in our liturgy? We just keep saying it over and over again, glory, glory, glory. It's one of those words that captures something special. Yesterday at our Loaves and Fishes ministry, one of the things that I kept hearing people saying as, as we were preaching or praying was they would lift up their hands and just say, glory to you, Lord, glory to you. And it was beautiful that, that people were expressing that love for God in that way. You know what? One of my favorite parts of football games, watching football games, is that little bit at the end when, when they do the post-game interviews with the, with the players. You know what I'm talking about? I love it because there's always some player who they ask him a question, how, did you, how do you think you won tonight? What, do you, what was the secret to your success tonight? And he always says, first of all, I just want to give glory to God and thank him for, for everything tonight. And, and then, and then the, the reporter sort of presses in and says, well, okay, but, but, but how, why'd you win? How'd you? He says, I just want to give all glory to God, my Lord Jesus Christ, and I want to, and I want to thank him for the victory tonight. I want to thank my teammates and my coach. And, and, the, and it's fascinating to me that the reporters always want to seem to steer them back to make them talk about themselves. If it's a star quarterback, they want to hear about how he thinks that he was the secret to the team's success that night or, or, that, or that somehow it, was, it, was, it all came down on one crucial play. And I just find it refreshing that in the middle of our narcissistic age, in this time of culture where, where the, the order of the day, the coin of the realm, seems to be to take credit for everything and anything that we can take credit for, when everything is oriented to getting glory or likes or credit for the things that happen in our lives, there's still these, these young athletes who in front of a nation, in front of God and everybody, in front of a stadium full of people, in front of a camera, still say, I want to give glory to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, here's a sad comment on our culture. Why is it taboo when an athlete gives glory to God, but celebrities and politicians talk all day long about how great they are? Have you ever noticed that, that people will say, will make snarky comments that a football player or a, a basketball player shouldn't make those, those public comments about faith? It's okay to say those kinds of things in church, but, but not in public. Out in public, we're, we're supposed to be devoid of devotion. Oh sure, we can talk about self-promotion all day long. But when it comes to devotion, we're supposed to keep that under wraps. It just makes me glad to see those young men and women or those coaches or whoever's saying that because that means that somewhere, someone along the way taught that young athlete the meaning of humility and gratitude and that it's not all about you and so what they do is they take that story that is supposed to be about them and they turn it to god let me ask you this who gets the glory in your story if a reporter were to come up to you after a great day at work or a great day at home a day that maybe seems particularly good, and asked you, wow, how'd your day go? What was the secret to your success today? How many of us would stand up in the halls of our office buildings 
in the parking lot or whatever and say, I just want to give all glory to my Lord Jesus Christ? How many of us would give all credit to Him? How many of us would turn that moment of our credit and our self-promotion to His glory? If a reporter walked up to you one day and asked you about your life, who would get the most credit? Or about your success? If he asked you about your challenges or how you got to your station and status in life, if he asked you about your gifts or your knowledge or your talents, who would get the glory in your story? Well, over the last few weeks, we've been studying the Old Testament book of Isaiah as a prophecy of hope and restoration in the midst of ruin. But today, our passage is about how the Lord takes our ruin and he takes our restoration and he uses it for his glory so if you'll turn with me to isaiah chapter 48 beginning in the 10th verse we're only going to read two verses this morning and i want to start in the 10th verse the prophet says this that says the lord behold i have refined you but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. The, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O oh Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. First of all, what is glory? Glory is a word that we use when other words fail us. It's the word we use to describe the beauty and the intensity and the brightness and the honor of God. So often described in terms of light, glory is the, is the word we use to describe that indescribable, unmistakable, irresistible energy of God that grabs our attention like a bolt of lightning or like fire or like sun breaking through the clouds or like starlight. But glory is not just a word about God's appearance. It's also a word about his character. The word glory is about the reputation of God, his power, his honor, his character, his constancy, his mercy, his justice, and his holiness. The glory of God is the knowledge of God that moves the mind and moves the heart and moves the will and makes us take Him seriously and pay attention to Him. God's glory is that transcendent, brilliant, indescribable, inescapable radiance that gets our attention and shows us who God really is and reminds us of what God has done. So how did God use the ruin and restoration of Israel for the display of his glory? How did he use it to get Israel's attention and the world's attention and to show us who he really is? Well, it all begins 
as we've talked about with Israel's ruin. In 587 B.C., Israel was in ruin. In spite of warning after warning, by prophet after prophet, the people's sin and rebellion against God, their blasphemy and their heresy, their corruption, their idolatry, and their crimes against one another, their abuse and neglect and injustice and exploitation of one another, had finally come home to roost. And in 587 B.C., God sent the armies of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to humble his people. Jerusalem was demolished. The temple was burned. The people were slaughtered. And those who were not put to the sword were hauled off to Babylon in chains. It was a calamity. Israel was in ruin. So how could God possibly use such devastation, that holocaust, to shape his glory. First, God is glorified in the refinement of his people. The Lord gave a hard explanation for how this would happen. First he said, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of of affliction. God used this calamity to get the attention of his own people. He used this ruin to remind them who they were and who he is. You know, there's an old saying that God whispers to us in our pleasure, but screams to us in our pain. I think we could also say that in good times, People tend to take God for granted. But in bad times, God gets our attention. Before the exile, the people had gotten to the point that their arrogance and prosperity and power led them to believe that they didn't need the Lord anymore, or at least they didn't need to take Him seriously. I mean, sure, their ancestors needed Him, but most of the people in the time of the exile thought that they were politically and economically and culturally self-sufficient. They were strong enough to stand on their own with the great empires of the ancient world. They were now in that club of nations, and they could be independent of the Lord. I mean, certainly, they would pay Him lip service, but then they would do things their own way. But when everything came crashing down around them, they realized that they were totally dependent on Him and that the forces in this world were too big for them to handle on their own. And they finally came to understand how much they needed God. You know, a crash brings us to that point that we realize we can't do it on our own. In ruin, we come to that point where we have to depend on God. We've got nowhere else to turn. We finally get broken down to the point that we realize we need Him. It can happen in a financial crash. It can happen in an addiction or a health crisis. It can happen in a marriage breakdown or a family crisis. It can happen in a business, a business explosion of some sort or a health scare. When you realize that you're going to need more than you can possibly provide for yourself. And at that point, ruin can take us either 
in the direction of despair or in the direction of dependence? The Lord, in His grace, at the time of Israel's ruin, decided to take them in the direction of dependence rather than despair. In the New Testament, God tells us that we are at our strongest when we are dependent on Him. The Apostle Paul suffered some kind of unspecified trouble as a constant reminder that even though he was God's apostle, he was still dependent on Him. He said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God was saying to him, I'm going to keep this thorn in your side. I'm going to keep this affliction on you so that you will never forget that you need me, so that you will never forget that you depend upon me. God's, God, uh, God used Israel's ruin to remind them of, his, of their dependence on him. Crisis brings clarity. And when tragedy strikes, we're reminded of what really matters. Ruin is a wake-up call that turns us around to God. It turns us away from the distractions of our world, the distractions that lead us to destruction, and calls us once again to the God who can really save us. When we turn around and face God and turn away from the distractions of the world, His glory gives us clarity to see the situation as it really is and to see Him for who He really is. And by His grace, we can see that He is the one who has the power to make a real difference in our lives. In the exile, the people had to come to terms with their sin and their rebellion against the Lord and one another. But God used that time as of ruin and exile as a time of refinement. He used it to refine His people. You know, their captors expected them to break. They expected them to turn, to turn from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to bend the knee to Bel and Nebo and Marduk and the other false gods of Babylon. They expected them just to give up on God's law and just go along with the decadence and the flow of the culture. But God did not abandon His people in exile. Even though He broke them down, He built them back up. He stayed with them. He kept on teaching them. He held them in the light of His glory and He forged them by the power of His glory. And during the exile, God not only reminded them of their special identity and their special purpose as God's missionary people, He refined their wisdom and purpose. He refined their understanding of Yahweh as the one true God, their understanding of the law, and their understanding of their mission. You know, the books of Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezra and Nehemiah all testify that the time of exile was a great reawakening for Israel. He taught them faithfulness. He taught them mercy and endurance and compassion and righteousness and self-control and kindness and empathy. The prophet uses this image of a silver crucible in which a smith heats up the silver to burn out the impurities that weaken the metal. You know, in the tragedy of war and deportation, 
All the pettiness, all the distraction, and all the temptation of Israel was burned out. But unlike silver, the prophet says, he does not heat us beyond what we can take. He took them to the melting point, but not to the point of destruction. And he transformed his own people by turning their full attention back to him. And so first, God is glorified in the refinement of his people. Second, God is, is glorified in the redemptive rescue of his people from their exile. Finally, after decades of rebellion and apathy, of injustice and decadence, the people turned back to God. And just as the Lord had raised up the Babylonians to humble his people, in 539 B.C., God raised up another great empire and another king to set Israel free. God raised up Cyrus, king of Persia, modern-day Iran, to conquer Babylon and to open the door for Israel to return home. In exile, God had transformed his own people by turning their full attention to him. But then God took the most powerful king in the world to do his bidding. He took the most powerful empire in the ancient world and mobilized it to fight for him and his people, all to draw attention to him. Now, at this point, we need to stop and heed a warning in Isaiah's prophecy. We have to remember that Cyrus was the instrument that God used to set the people free from exile so that they could go home. But he was not their savior. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, I equip you though you do not know me, so that the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. We need to heed this warning because there is such a temptation to turn an instrument of God into an idol, especially when that instrument is a person. Right now, watch the news. There are politicians flying back and forth all across our country making incredible promises, trying to live up to impossible expectations, all promising that if you will give me your time, if you'll give me your attention, if you'll give me your money, if you will give me your vote ultimately, I will give you everything you need. How many people right now go to rallies, go to political rallies, expecting to hear a candidate but hoping to hear a Savior? It is so dangerous to allow that temptation when an, when an instrument becomes an idol. We can't let our leaders whether they're leaders in politics or science or education, even our leaders in the church, we cannot allow our leaders to become idols. Cyrus was an instrument of God, but the Lord was their Savior. He is my shepherd, says the Lord, and he shall fulfill my purpose. The Lord said, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. 
For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give another. The Lord is saying, how shall my name be profaned? When people stop paying attention to me and start paying more attention to idols, I will not be ignored. And so in their ruin, the Lord had the attention of his people. And now he would use the rescue of Israel to get the attention of the world. God used one of the greatest empires of ancient history to get the attention of the world. And he established his reputation as the God who has the might to subdue the nations of the earth and who has the mercy to restore the people to their homes and break the prisoners' chains. And he did it so that the world would know that the God of Isaiah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, is not just a tribal God. The Lord God is not just the God over the Jews, but the God over all people, over every tribe and nation and tongue. He's not just the Lord of the Hebrews. He is the Lord over the Persians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the whole world. The Redeemer of Israel is God over the whole world, and His glory is universal. So the story of Israel's restoration gives glory to the Lord because it is a story that draws attention to God and shows us who God really is and what God has done. God used the ruin and restoration of Israel to draw his own people closer to him and to show his power to the world. So finally, third, God is glorified by the retelling of the story of God's restoration. St. Augustine, the great Christian theologian of the 4th century, once said that the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new concealed. What Augustine was doing was that he was connecting the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament to say that there are certain principles of God's plan that are often demonstrated one way in the Old Testament through the history of Israel, but then are finally and fully revealed in the New Testament through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's saying that the glory of God in the story of of historical Israel now belongs to us because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus took the universal salvation, rescue, and restoration of Israel and made it personal. us god used the ruin of the cross and the restoration of the resurrection to get our attention and to show the world who he really is and the death and resurrection of jesus christ the glory of god was on full display first of all the glory and weight of his love was on display as jesus hung there heavy on the cross to show us the danger and the ugliness and the weight of our sin At the same time, he was also showing us how far God was willing to go and how much he was willing to endure to prove his love for us. And then in his resurrection, God's glory was displayed in his victory over death, just as God had conquered the Babylonians and opened the way for the exiles to return home, restoring their identity and purpose. So Jesus Christ had conquered death and has forever broken its grip on us. God has taken all of that glory and made it personal in our lives through the salvation of Jesus Christ. 
And now God wants to use that story of our transformation, your story and my story, to get the attention of the world. When we tell the story of our restoration in Jesus Christ, His light shines. And He gets the glory. You know, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah was in the temple doing the daily rounds of his priestly work. When suddenly, the glory of the Lord, that indescribable, inescapable, unyielding light of God's holiness surrounded him. And when Isaiah beheld the unmasked, unscreened glory of God for himself, with his own eyes, he was overwhelmed by humility. And he even cursed himself saying, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He cursed himself because in the light of God's presence, every bit of his sin, every bit of his failure, every bit of his weakness and need was exposed. And he saw himself standing there before the glory of God. He was utterly humbled. But God did not leave him on the floor, did not leave him in his pain, did not leave him in his despair, but rather God restored him. He, re he purged his sin and he refined him. And he told him to stand up. And then the Lord called out saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah, having been restored by God, was so enthusiastic, he said, Here I am! Send me! He was empowered. He was inspired. He wanted to tell the world what the Lord had done for him. And that is the authentic response to God's redemptive restoration. When you are saved and transformed by the living God, you have to tell somebody. The glory of God convicts us in our sin. But then it restores us in our identity and purpose. You know, this story is not just about God's glory back then. The story of the gospel is about God's glory in your life right now. Here's the truth. You have a story. And that story matters because that story is about God's glory. You know, you may not think of yourself as a prophet, but you may be the Isaiah that someone needs in their life to tell them the story of God's glory. You may not be an apostle, but your story may be the story someone needs to hear in their brokenness, in their persecution, in their ruin. You know, it may not be a dramatic story, but if it is real, then you do have a story, and that story matters because someone else needs to hear it. If God can restore and set free and rebuild Israel, restoring their identity and purpose, He can restore you from devastation and ruin, and He can restore your life. If God loved His Son even when, he carried the, even when His Son carried the total sin of all humanity on His back, he can love you even with the sins you carry. If God can raise Jesus from the dead and get him out of the tomb and restore him to new life, there's not a pit that he can't get you out of. 
The great American Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards once said, Be what sinner you may, God can greatly glorify himself in your salvation. Possibly one of the most brief, most beautiful testimonies in all of the Bible comes from Psalm 40. The psalmist just says this, He drew me out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Do you see what happens when we tell the story of God's glory? People hear, and they turn to the Lord for their own help, and He gets the glory. You know, we have a problem when our culture applauds public displays of self-promotion while mocking and scandalizing public displays of devotion. As the Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man, the meaning of life, our number one job is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. As a caveat to that, pastor and author John Piper likes to say that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him where do you get your greatest joy where do you get your greatest satisfaction who's getting the glory in your story are you using your story of ruin and restoration to bring glory to god to draw attention to him and to show how god has made a difference in your life how are you using your story for God's glory. Heavenly Father, you have blessed us, you have held us, and you hold us now. And yet we so often want to take credit for the things that we do and the successes we have in our lives. So we ask that you would turn our story to your glory, that you would help us to use the story of our restoration from ruin to encourage and to inspire and to glorify your name. Lord, help us to tell our stories knowing that, that even if we're not proficient at it, even if we're not professionals, even if, even if we're unsure how to do it, that you can use that story to make a difference in people's lives because your story of glory can change the world. Lord, make us bold to tell of the great things that you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.